Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. Good morning, everyone. It is still the morning, even though it's nearing lunchtime, so I promise that it will not be a super long sermon. Uh, I will not stand in the way of your yet unseen lunch. So I just want to ask, before we start, take a poll, quick poll. Who here has encountered a scammer before? Just raise your hand. I mean, you don't have to encounter personally. It could be through the form of a WhatsApp, um, text, or a Telegram message. So I think the majority of us here have encountered. So it's whether you had a link from a headhunter who offered you a job, or a message from your bank, or your telco telling you that there's a problem with your payment, and please... Um, click on this link, or when you click on an ad um, in social media, you wanted to buy mooncakes, durians, and house cleaning service, and they say, oh, in order to pay for this, you have to download an app. So first of all, public service announcement, please don't download the apps, because I personally know people, even in Covenant, who have had their savings accounts wiped out in a matter of minutes. So we feel that scammers are ultra, ultra irritating, right? Yeah. And the way in which we see these scammers is that, you know, it's, they're so irritating. Why do they intrude on our lives? It's like, can't they go and find a proper job? So what do we do? We either hang out on them or we see the, plus, the number, then we immediately hang up or we block their messages. Or there are some of you, uh, you know who you are, you like to troll the scammers. So you engage in conversations with them and you string them along and then you just like to waste their time. You know who you are, okay? But did you know that some of these scammers, they are actually also victims themselves? We see them as the perpetrators, but actually some of them are also victims. And so we can all kind of guess that scammers are probably part of a crime syndicate operating from overseas, maybe from um, Russia or North Korea, but increasingly some of these scammers are victims themselves. They are being lured and kidnapped into cyber scam mills um, and that they are forced to run cyber scams while they're in captivity. So it sounds like it is part of a K-drama, but even Interpol has already said, increasingly, these cyber scam mills, human trafficking for these cyber scam mills is an increasing global problem. So not only when we deal with the scammers, that's, a, that's the scammers that call you, there's also the crime syndicate layer, and behind that, there's also a human trafficking layer. But from our point of view, when we receive the WhatsApp, or when we receive the Telegram message, or we receive the phone call, we only see the first layer of reality, but we don't see all of the stuff that's happening behind, the many layers of struggle and conflict behind. So to a certain extent, this kind of describes a little bit about Daniel chapter 10 to 12. So in Daniel chapter 10 to 12, which is one unit, Daniel receives a vision and then the angel goes on to explain what the vision is. So he's seeing one layer of physical reality, but as God answers his prayer, God reveals the unseen, the cosmic realities above, behind and beyond the physical reality. So, recapping the context of Daniel chapter 10, about two weeks ago before Missions Weeks, 
Pastor Cook shared with us about how Daniel was strengthened by God in his morning. So now, if I can bring you back to that, what was Daniel actually mourning about? He was mourning over Jerusalem. Most likely, he was mourning over Jerusalem because the historical context at that point in time is that exiles can now come back to Jerusalem, but it is not what they expect when they go back. The restoration is not what they expect. The new temple cannot be compared to its former glory. They are encountering all sorts of danger and opposition when they rebuild. And of course, the economy is not what it is supposed to be. And there is economic difficulties for the people who are there. And so this context is given in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as well as Haggai. So the people, they are disappointed and confused at the state of things. And Daniel, even though he did not return back to Jerusalem, he probably knew some of what is going on. And he's also mourning along with the people and also the state of what the people are, um, the state of the temple and probably the state of Jerusalem. So as people living in the modern world today, actually we also can understand a little bit about how Daniel feels. Because when we see the world today, we also mourn for the state of the world. We also mourn for the state of the church. We mourn at what's going on. We see present reality. We also mourn at what's going on. And like Daniel, we also want to ask God, why? What's happening? And how long? The thing for Daniel is that God answers. God answers, but God answers Daniel in a way that blows his mind. Because God doesn't just answer his present question, God reveals to Daniel a world that is unseen. And through the vision, God reveals firstly a future dimension, giving a prophetic revelation of what Israel will go through to wars and conflict towards the final end. But God also reveals not only the future dimension, God also reveals an unseen cosmic dimension. And in the cosmic dimension, it is clear that God is firmly, absolutely, sovereignly in control of all world history. That is the cosmic dimension. And in the description of the angel, angelic vision, it's also revealed that there's an unseen cosmic reality consisting of a spiritual realm with angelic beings. And almost as a by the way, as they describe how he's given the vision, we also realize that in the unseen reality, there's also a spiritual war, a great war, if you will. And there is a great war happening among the angelic beings. So while the spiritual war is not the main point of the unit, I think this is a very good opportunity for us to delve deeper into the excursus, that there is an unseen reality and there's a war in the spiritual realm. Because... There's a reason why God reveals this unseen reality to Daniel. Because in the midst of all the confusion and chaos of the world, he reveals the unseen reality so that Daniel may be strengthened and so that he will remain faithful to the final end. And likewise for us today, likewise for us today, may we also be awakened to a world unseen so that God may also strengthen us to be faithful in our chaotic and messy world today. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me even as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that as we think about what spiritual warfare means, we ask for your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, 
to help us discern our thoughts, to transform our hearts for full obedience and full repentance unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we are going to be talking about the topic of spiritual warfare, an unseen reality. And we're going to talk about a world that's unseen. We're going to talk about an adversary that needs to be unmasked. And we talk about, finally, about a victory that needs to be lived. So, a world unseen. What comes to mind when you hear the term spiritual warfare? Is it, yee, so scary? Or, hello, please don't be so unsophisticated. C.S. Lewis tells us that in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that there are two errors, opposite errors, when we think about spiritual warfare. And the first error is being a materialist. And the materialist says, I can only believe in what I can see and prove. So the scientific rationalist in us says, none of these things can be empirically proven and therefore demons don't exist. So evil can only be explained in maybe genetic terms, psychological factors, sociological factors, or historical factors. And so we underestimate the powers of darkness in this world. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have the magician. Anything and everything can be attributed to the devil and to evil spirits. So living in Asia, we are kind of familiar with some of these concepts. We hear stories of bomos, we hear stories of Chinese mediums, or Seventh month, Hungry Ghost Vessel just ended not too long ago. And of course, some of us have friends in Tekong who tells us lots and lots of very interesting stories. I will not tell them right here today. So when you are on this extreme, you tend to blame everything that's negative on the devil. Everything the devil. So we do that and we don't allow room for personal sin and we don't allow room for the fallenness and the brokenness of this world when negative things happen. And when you are on this extreme, you're giving the devil way too much glory. So most of us, I think, lie somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Also because maybe we come to Covenant EFC and we are balanced. We live in modern Singapore. And most of us can accept the concept of evil spiritual activity, but most of us don't encounter it very often. If you do, Maybe you don't want to tell your neighbor because he may not want to sit next to you next week, okay? But then let's take a look at what the Bible really says about this. And this is how Tim Keller describes the origin of evil. So the Bible says that the origin of evil came from the free will of two races of beings that God created, angels and human beings. And some of the angels fell when they exercised their free will and they rebelled and they turned away from God. And so there are fallen angels, the devil and his demons, and they are personal supernatural beings. Likewise, human race, we also fell, we turned away from God, we rebelled, and now sin and evil also resides within our heart and our souls. So because there is no one single passage in the Bible that speaks about evil and spiritual activity and all that, we are going to take a super quick survey from the Old Testament all the way to the New. So let's take a quick look. So in the Old Testament, firstly, you have the temptation and the fall of man in Genesis 3. You also have mentions of the name Satan, that's in Job, Zechariah, 1 Chronicles. There's mentions of demonic activity. There's mentions of spiritual beings being associated with pagan gods and idolatry. In the New Testament, you have the temptation of Jesus, and that occurs in the Gospels. You have accounts of 
demonic exorcisms um, in the Gospels and also in the narratives. You have teachings on Christ's victory over Satan on the cross, and you can find that in the epistles and Revelation. And of course, you have teachings on spiritual warfare in the Christian life, in the church, and for the lost. And that permeates throughout pretty much the New Testament. So the point of this is not for you to look at this table and to memorize it. You will not be tested later. But it's to show you that from the very broad sweep, you can see that the presence of demonic or spiritual activity is very present and pervasive in the Bible. It's assumed. People during those times, they just live as if it exists and they assume it exists. And it's embedded in the narratives, in the prophetic books, in the Gospels and in the epistles. So for spiritual warfare, something like spiritual warfare, different parts of the Bible will inform different aspects of it. So just want to have a slight caution here. It may not be a wise thing to take one passage such as that in Daniel 10 that describes spirits having authority over kingdoms and over territories. And then you take this one single passage to form an entire methodology about spiritual warfare. For example, identifying and labeling very specific spirits that have authority over very specific territories and very specific areas. So it is, can be hard to do that. So to engage in biblical warfare from a biblical point of view, we have to draw insight from the entirety of the Bible, from the whole council of the Bible. So what is the point of all this? The point of this is that from this broad understanding, it is clear that spiritual warfare is real, it is pervasive, and it is very present all the way from the beginning of Scripture right to the end of Revelation. Which is why I think IDMC Conference 2024 actually is a very pertinent topic, spiritual warfare. And what I'm covering today is a super broad sweep that I barely scratched the surface only. So, from this broad sweep, there are two other things that I must emphasize. Firstly, we must be very, very clear that spiritual warfare is not a fight against two equal powers. Okay? God is way above the devil because the devil is only a created being and that Christ has already won the victory over sin, over death, over Satan. That one is done deal. Done. But in the limited time that the devil has left, God does sovereignly allow spiritual warfare, but he sovereignly limits it. And that is the assurance that we have. As we deal with living in this world, as we deal with the reality of spiritual warfare in this world, so what must we do? And how must we think about spiritual warfare while we are still here on earth? We first have to reckon with the world unseen, but we also have to begin to unmask what are the schemes of the adversary? Our adversary is someone that is very smart. So when you think of spiritual warfare, what scenarios come to mind? Maybe some of you might be thinking about occultic influence, ministering to someone under demonic oppression, or maybe doing something like a house cleansing. So over the years, I've ministered to different ones under spiritual oppression. And one unusual case was when I was ministering to a young working adult a couple of years back. So this person was not yet a Christian, well-educated, a very good job, but she had stumbled upon a website that promoted something called automatic writing. 
So automatic writing, while it's seemingly innocuous, is a practice where it has spiritual roots, where you're allowing the spirits to influence you as you begin to unconsciously write. So you're not actually consciously writing, you're just letting the spirit help you write whatever the spirit wants to write. So this person thought that it was a you know, spiritually neutral practice, and she began to do it. But as she did it, she began to experience something very strange. She started to experience her movements being physically controlled, her movements being physically constrained. She could feel it in her hands, she could feel it in her feet, she could feel it when she slept at night. And it got worse and worse, so much so that she couldn't sleep at night, it began to affect her work, it began to affect her sleep, and she felt that she was beginning to lose control of her thoughts, and she felt that she was beginning to lose her mind. But God, in His mercy, placed upon her heart that He was with her, and spoke very clearly to her to go look for a church. And through the help of friends, she went to a church, and she subsequently accepted Christ and she prayed to receive Christ, she acknowledged Jesus as Lord, and as we began to pray for her over this situation, that day when we prayed for her, she experienced the freedom from this control, from this spirit. And she testifies of the freedom that she received that very day, and today she's continuing to grow in her faith very well in the church. So many times when you think of spiritual Opposition. We think of spiritual warfare. We think of overt opposition. Maybe not always occultic in nature. Most of us don't come into contact with that. But we also think of spiritual warfare as major negative events. Like, for example, major accidents, traumatic accidents, or persecution for our faith. Or we see a very shocking fall from grace by a spiritual leader. Or perhaps major health crises. Major negative and adverse circumstances that prevent the spread of the gospel. So all of these things, this overt opposition can be valid and true, which is why some people do say that spiritual warfare mostly happens to those in active ministry. But I submit to you that this thinking, while having a grain of truth, it also can be a half-truth because Spiritual warfare is much, much more than negative circumstances. At the heart of spiritual warfare is a pervasive and scheming attempt to turn us away from our faith and our faithfulness to God. We all experience spiritual warfare, whether you like it or not. We all experience spiritual warfare. And this is how it began in Genesis chapter 3. Allow me to read for you Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is a very familiar account, the fall of man and the temptation of man. And we look at the questions that the serpent was asking, what honestly is the angle of his attack? What is he really after? 
The serpent is after the character of God. He's going after the character of God. He's sowing doubt into Eve's mind about God's truthfulness, about God's goodness, and about God's greatness. He's painting a picture of God that diminishes His love and His holiness. And this is the primary target of spiritual warfare, to attack our view of God, to blind us to His love and His goodness, and to diminish God's holiness and His greatness to us. And you know... That is super, super smart of the devil. Why do I say that? Because he begins with the end in mind. If he manages to distort our view of God, it distorts everything. If our view of God is distorted, it distorts everything because it will distort our view of ourselves, it will distort our relationship with God, and then it also distorts how we see our purpose and our mission in life. And the evil one attacks our view of God to turn us away from faith and faithfulness to God, to turn us away from faithfulness to God and to His mission. And that is the goal. The goal of spiritual warfare is to turn us away from faith and faithfulness to God. And what the evil one is trying to do is really to steal our identity in Him and to steal our destiny of who we are meant to be and what we are meant to do in partnership with Him. And He steals our identity, and he robs us of our destiny. So the question is, how then does he do this? How then does he turn us away from faith and faithfulness? He does this through his primary strategy of deception. We can see that very clearly in Genesis 3. He gives a distorted view of God by sowing doubts about God's goodness, about God's truth. He says, did God really actually confirm, double confirm, triple confirm, say this? Or he uses half-truths you will not surely die, lah. Or outright lies, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So through the primary strategy of deception, we will then fall into the traps of discouragement, defilement, and divisions. Here are some scripts that you may identify with for defilement. Maybe my sin isn't too big. God understands that I'm human. God will still forgive me one. I don't really want to continue doing this, but I can't help myself. No one can help me, not even God. Or maybe you think something like this. You know, sin is just a social construct. It's just people putting moral and value judgments on other people. We should just let people, let them be. Okay? Let them believe what they want to believe and let them do whatever they believe. Or perhaps discouragement. I feel so beaten down by life. I feel that God has bypassed me and forgotten me. Or, I don't feel significant enough for God to use me at all. Perhaps divisions. This person, I'm not naming your spouse, uh, but it could be your spouse, take it for whatever you wish. This person's always like that. He will never change. Okay, there's no way, there's no point in reconciling with him. Or this person is trying to just use me and abuse me. Again, I'm not speaking about your spouse, okay? Or perhaps as a leader, you're thinking, you know, serving people in my CG is just not worth it. No matter what I do, no matter how much effort I put in, nothing changes. Nobody ever responds in the WhatsApp chat. So these scripts, these scripts, they sow doubts, they are half-truths, and some of them are outright lies. But we can somehow identify with the thoughts, the feelings, and the emotions. In our heads, we kind of know, this is not quite the truth. 
But in our human experience, we really find that it's very hard to overcome. We find it very hard for the truth to travel down from our heads into our hearts and into our belief systems. So why is it so hard to believe in the truth? Why is overcoming these deceptions so difficult? And let's take a look at a very familiar passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We all know that we have personal sin to deal with. We all know that we live in a world that is fallen and broken. But there is one more element that we need to contend with that is behind the scenes, behind the flesh and blood. There are powers and principalities at play. So often there is actually more than just a mental battle in our minds. It's a spiritual battle in our minds. And the evil one, while he's not God, meaning that he's not omniscient, omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, meaning that he's not all-powerful, he is not all-present, he's not all-knowing, but he's still pretty good, pretty good at reading us. He's still pretty good at influencing us. He knows our personal strengths and weaknesses. He knows our past. He knows the wounds that we've been dealt with. And he knows the circumstances in our lives. So behind the scenes, he can use spiritual powers to exacerbate circumstances or to influence our thoughts and our reactions. So very often, the devil will use what is already present within us. And he uses our insecurity. Or he uses our pride. Or he uses our wounds. Or our fears and our anxieties. And uses all of these things against us. So that we become deceived. We become discouraged. We become divided. And we become defiled. So friends, I suggest today that the greatest battle that we fight is not a battle outside. But the greatest battle in spiritual warfare is the battle within. And this is one of the key reasons why the senior pastors have shared that for next year, the burden is holiness. And for CFC um, next year, one of the foundational steps is to close gaps in our interior life and our belief system. And so we will be running the Freedom in Christ course next year, and we're strongly encouraging CGs to do this together and journey together in a 10-week course so that as a church family, we really close the interior gaps within and be strengthened in our discipleship. So right here now, I just want to pause for a little while and give us a little bit of time to reflect. What is one area in your life that you may have left room for deception, for defilement, for discouragement, or for division? What might that be? It could be an addiction. It could be you dabbling in something that you think is spiritually neutral. It could be unforgiveness, resentment. Whatever it is, the evil one jumps on it and begins to cause havoc in your mind, in your discipleship, and in your relationships. So I'm just going to give us just a moment for the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts and to surface anything, anything that we may have left room for the evil one to play in.
whatever that God is bringing to mind, just hold it for a moment and we'll come back to it a little bit later. But in the meantime, how then do we overcome these things that perhaps we have left room for? How then should we fight? So not only do we reckon with a world unseen, we also need to unmask the adversary, but we also need to understand the victory and live out the victory that has already been won. Let's take a look again at the Ephesians passage. And if you could just either turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, or you can follow along to read aloud. We'll be reading uh, verse 10 to 20 aloud together. I think it's helpful for us to do that. So I'm reading from the ESV version. Verse 10, let's read together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is a very famous and a very familiar verse in the Bible. And usually when we read this passage, we are often very focused on the armour of God, its specifics. For example, what is the belt of truth? Or what is the breastplate of righteousness? So, the specifics are important. They are completely necessary because they're expressions of the main point. But the armour of God actually is not necessarily the main point of this text. What then is the main point? The main point actually is in the beginning, in verse 10. The main point is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is essentially the one-night summary of what it means to stand against the powers of darkness and the rest of the passage, it explains it. So in other words, in short, our victory is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the Lord alone, in the Lord, in Christ alone. And to live in victory means to live in Christ and Christ alone. Be strong in the Lord. So this is what Clinton Arnold uh, a uh, commentator says about chapter 6, verse 10, and it says here, The prominent themes of union with Christ and the new identity of believers, they come to a climax in 6, 10 to 20, because it is through this relationship and all that it entails that believers are strengthened to resist the powerful attacks from the evil one and his emissaries. The readers are admonished to be strong in the Lord, that is through growing in a deeper, growing deeper in a present, 
dynamic relationship of dependence on the one who is powerful enough to do more than they could ask or even imagine. In other words, the key to our victory is to be in Christ. It is to know our identity as believers, to grow in deeper union with the Lord Jesus through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. And I think the word that best describes this kind of relationship is the word lordship. To walk in victory in the Christian life is to walk in lordship. A couple of years back, I had the opportunity to minister to a domestic helper. And this domestic helper is from Indonesia, and her grandfather practiced witchcraft. And when she got here, she experienced all sorts of demonic oppression, very traumatic things that she went through. So the employers and I, together with some others from the Indonesian Fellowship, was ministering to her, walking her through. We brought her to Christ. We walked her through a lot of the traumatic experiences. So on one occasion, after she has decided to receive the Lord, I went to the home and I visited her and to pray for her. And I ministered to her in her room where she slept in. So while we were in the room, I began to pray that she would no longer see the evil spirits that she used to see and that the presence of God would fill the room. So she was standing directly in front of me as I prayed. And I was doing what I was usually doing. I was praying and I was singing a hymn and then I was reading a psalm and then she suddenly jumped. And then I also jumped. But of course, I inwardly jumped. I did not outwardly jump. And then she pointed to behind me. So I carefully turned and I saw nothing. And I carefully turned back and I asked her very calmly, so what is it that you see? And she said, Mom, I don't know, I don't know, but he's very, very tall and he's very, very bright and very, very shining. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's Jesus. Okay, that's Jesus. You're seeing Jesus. And then I asked her, do you want Jesus to completely fill the room? And she said, yes. And she nodded and we prayed and we prayed for Jesus to fill her room, to fill her room and to fill her heart completely. So friends, when Jesus completely fills the room, there's no room left for other things. When Jesus completely fills the room, that's lordship. In a world that is unseen, with an adversary that we must fight, the key to victory is to walk in lordship. Friends, I just want to say lovingly to all of us here in this room today that there are areas in our lives that we have not yet fully submitted unto the Lord. There are areas in our lives where it's tainted by sin and rebellion. There are areas in our life that we have allowed room for darkness. There are areas in our lives where Jesus is not fully Lord. You've allowed yourself to be deceived, defiled, discouraged, divided. And if there are areas in our lives where we've allowed room for that and we do not let Jesus have full and ultimate influence over it, we leave room within ourselves for other things to come in and play. We leave room within ourselves to be influenced by other things. And so the evil one uses our sinfulness 
our habits, our strengths, our weaknesses against us. And if we leave room for sin, we leave room for the evil one to play. No wonder some of us feel like we're living very defeated lives. So today, as we come to a close, this is my call to all of you. Today, let's no longer leave room in our hearts for sin. Let's no longer leave room in our hearts for darkness. Let's no longer leave room in our hearts for the evil one to play. And today, we want to ask Jesus to come and completely fill all of the rooms in our hearts. And today, we want to come to a place where we ask Jesus to be Lord over our lives again. So even as the worship team comes to minister this song again to us, I speak Jesus. Speaking Jesus is not just saying a name. Speaking Jesus is asking Jesus to be Lord, to have that lordship over areas of our lives where we have given ground or we have left it open through sin, through darkness, through our habits. And today, we want to ask that Jesus be Lord over every single area of our life. Over our anger, may Jesus be Lord. Over our addictions, may Jesus be Lord. Over our unforgiveness and bitterness, may Jesus be Lord. Over the careless words that I speak, may Jesus be Lord, over the deep discouragement that I feel, may Jesus be Lord. Just now when I asked you to reflect on an area that the Lord is bringing to mind, and the Lord may have brought up a few more areas that He's asking you to pay attention to. As the worship team sings this over us, would you begin to respond to the Lord and say, Lord, I surrender this to you. I surrender my anger to you. I surrender this addiction to you. I surrender this darkness to you. Come and be Lord in my life again. spend some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. You can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.